Welcome back to Roots Music History. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about one of the most requested stories I have received on this channel, the story of Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix had a very crazy and complicated life in addition to a very crazy and complicated death. In today's episode, we are going to be talking about his crazy life and everything that led up to that day that he was found by Monica Daneman. We're going to talk about who Monica was and all of the conspiracies surrounding his death as well. Jimi Hendrix was born John Allen Hendrix on November 27, 1942. He was born to Al Hendricks and Lucille Judder in Seattle. Lucille and Al had met in the fall of 1941. Just a few months after they met, Pearl Harbor happened. About three months after Pearl Harbor happened, Lucille told Al she was pregnant with who would eventually become Jimi Hendrix. Even though he was set to leave on deployment to a training camp in Oklahoma to go serve in the war, he did the noble thing and he proposed to Lucille. Al was very excited to be a father. The entire year Lucille was pregnant, Al was hopping around from training facility to training facility, waiting to be deployed to go fight in World War II. Al knew Jimmy had a due date in November, so he kept submitting requests to leave the training facility for a period of time so that he could be present when Jimi Hendrix was born. However, at that time, they only allowed a limited amount of parental leave time. I believe it was three days, three or five days, which was not enough time for Al to travel from Oklahoma back to where Lucille was in Seattle to be there for Jimmy's birth. And it really broke Al's heart that he couldn't be there and witness Jimmy being born. Now, little did Al know, but in this year, in 1942, when he's hopping around from training facility to training facility, Lucille's mental health was really struggling. Lucille was an alcoholic, and it's very likely that she was drinking a lot while she was pregnant with Jimmy. It's also possible that she was doing drugs as well, although nobody really knows what she was doing because she kind of had a history of disappearing for periods of time and then resurfacing. Five days after Jimmy was born, Lucille actually dropped him off on the front porch of a stranger's house. And meanwhile, Al doesn't know this because Al is still at the training facility. Al knew that something was wrong, though, because Lucille's letters back to him started getting less and less frequent. He also thought it was weird when his letters began to be returned to him with an unknown address or a delivery address failure. In the rare instance that Al would get a letter back from Lucille, the return address was always different. Despite Lucille's terrible communication skills, Al continued to write letters to her and continued to ask how Jimmy was doing. Now, at that time, though, remember his name was John Allen. It was not yet Jimmy. Definitely not Jimi Hendrix, J-I-M-I, the way we know it today. It wasn't until one day Al got a letter from a stranger in the mail at his training camp. He opened the letter and it was from a woman who said she had his son, John Allen. Al was flabbergasted. He thought that Lucille was still taking care of John Allen, Jimi Hendrix. In the letter, the woman also stated Lucille had some mental issues and some alcoholism that she was struggling with. The woman was very nice in her letter. She told Al where she lived. She told Al how John Allen was doing. There wasn't much that Al could do anyways, but once he realized that John Allen was not being raised by Lucille any longer, he filed for divorce from Lucille. A few months went by when Al received another letter. This time, it was from a different woman. She said that the woman who had been raising John Allen had unexpectedly passed away, and now she was the one raising John Allen, Jimi Hendrix, and that Al could come get John Allen from her whenever he was back from his deployment. 
So it was a grueling two years for Al not being able to be there for his son. And it wasn't until 1945 when Al finally was able to leave his deployment and came back to Johnny Allen. Al always thought Lucille had come up with the name John Allen as kind of a play off of his name, Al, and having Allen be his middle name. But once he came back in 1945 to get John Allen from this other woman, after learning about all of the things that Lucille was doing, Al was very suspicious of how Lucille got the name John Allen. He began to think Lucille had been cheating on him with another man and had actually named John Allen after this other man that she could have been with. So immediately upon getting John Allen back, Al decided to change his name to James Marshall. Now at this time, Jimi Hendrix, aka James Marshall, was only about three years old, so he really didn't know the difference getting a new name, and most people were calling him Jimmy anyway because his original name was Johnny, so as a child, Jimi Hendrix didn't really understand that his name was being changed and definitely didn't know the reasons why. Just a couple of months after Al got John Allen, James Marshall, back under his care, Lucille came crawling back. And this was also after their divorce had been finalized. Lucille came back. One day, she just knocked on Al's door and said that she wanted a second chance. Al, you have to understand, loved Lucille with everything he had. He truly loved her. So when Lucille came back and was knocking on the door, wanting a second chance, wanting to be a proper mother to Jimmy, Al said yes, and he let her in and they started a life together again. For a while, Al and Jimmy had been living with Lucille's sister, but after Lucille came back and wanted a second chance, Al got really excited and he actually got kind of a second wind and this motivation to take care of a family. That's all he really ever wanted to do. Even though he didn't have a lot of money, he found a hotel room where he, Lucille, and Jimmy could live there for a while until they had enough money to sign a lease for an apartment or to get a house or any other kind of living arrangement. Al worked several jobs in order to keep food on the table. After a while, Al realized working all of these little jobs wasn't bringing in enough money, so he decided to take a job on a naval ship that was going to pay much, much better. Now, the only downside to taking this higher paying job was that he was going to have to go to Japan for a period of time. I think it was like three weeks, not a long time, but he was going to have to go to Japan for an extended period of time. Once Al got back from Japan and went back to his hotel room to see Lucille and Jimmy after his long trip away, he realized that the hotel room door was locked and Lucille was not there and neither was Jimmy. Al had no idea what was going on. He called Lucille's sister, who he had stayed with for a little while before, went over to her house. Later that night, Jimmy ended up coming back to the sister's house because Jimmy was just on a trip with some friends, like a day trip, a field trip kind of a thing. But Lucille's sister and Jimmy and Al did not know where Lucille was. Lucille didn't end up coming back for several days. And once she came back, Lucille just said, oh, I forgot that you were coming back on this day. I was just with a friend. This behavior from Lucille continued to happen where she would just disappear for a few days at a time and then come back and say she was with a friend. One day, Lucille came to Al and said she was pregnant. Al knew the child wasn't his. He asked Lucille, is this my child? And she said, no. Ultimately, it seems as though Al did forgive Lucille for this affair, kind of, a little bit, but then it happened again a year later. She got pregnant again with another child, again, who was not Al's. At this point, Al is almost to his breaking point when he finds out in that same year, in like the same span of a few weeks, that Lucille was also having an affair with a 16-year-old boy 
who was coming in and out of the house, helping to babysit for Jimmy when Lucille and Al were both gone. Once Al found out about Lucille's affair with a 16-year-old, he absolutely lost it. That was the last straw for him. He was already pretty much at his breaking point. As difficult as it was, Al pretty much tossed Lucille out of his and Jimmy's life. He got custody of Lucille's other two children, who were not his, and tried for several months to feed all three boys. Even though money was already so, so tight for Al, he was already working several jobs. They were living in a hotel. He was trying to put food on the table, also trying to save money to give Jimmy a better life. Now feeding two additional mouths who are not even his kids was too hard for Al. He ended up putting one of the boys up for adoption and the other boy had to go into foster care. So at that point, it was just Al and Jimmy the two of them again. Al and Jimmy ended up at a homeless shelter that was run by a really sweet woman and she had one son who was around Jimmy's age. Jimmy ended up being friends with this woman's son. He actually convinced Jimmy to get his very first guitar. Even though money was really tight for Al, he scraped up $5 at the time to give to Jimmy so that Jimmy could buy this guitar. Just a few years after Al and Jimmy were in this boarding house shelter type of a situation, Lucille ended up dying at just 32 years old. As Jimmy entered high school, his father met another woman who was very sweet and had a family and a house. He and Jimmy ended up moving in with this other woman while Jimmy went to high school. This other woman also ended up cheating on Al. Poor Al! Also around this time, Jimmy started getting into a little bit of trouble. Jimmy actually stole a car and was going to court for this theft when his lawyer said, well, he's actually going to join the army. Once his lawyer said he's decided he's going to go into the military, the judge kind of dropped any type of discussion about a juvenile detention center or volunteer work. So there's some controversy out there that Jimmy got out of going to jail by joining the army. Jimmy disputes this and says he wanted to fight for America and he wanted to go to the army and this was something he just wanted to do. Follow in his father's footsteps in a lot of ways. He ended up at a training facility in Kentucky that was just an hour away from Nashville, Tennessee. While Jimmy was at this training facility in Kentucky, he wrote a letter to his father, asked his father if he could send him the guitar he had bought while staying at the boarding house shelter for $5. Al was like, okay, sure. Sent Jimmy the guitar and really didn't think anything of it other than the fact maybe Jimmy was bored and just wanted to play guitar. In 1962, Jimmy was discharged because of an injury and ended up going to Nashville, Tennessee. While Jimmy was in Nashville, he started playing at local bars and local restaurants and started becoming part of the guitar network in Nashville. He started learning new techniques and started learning different licks and really started to get immersed in the musician life. After playing in Nashville, Tennessee for a while, Jimmy decided to move to New York City. Now, it was one night in 1966 when Jimmy was playing at a club in New York City when one of the Rolling Stones girlfriends heard him play. This woman's name was Linda Keith. Linda Keith went back to the Rolling Stones, told them about this amazing guitarist she heard named Jimmy Hendrix, J-I-M-M-Y Hendrix. She kept probing the Rolling Stones to go listen to him play. You've got to hear this guy. You've got to hear this guy. Of course, everyone's like, okay, Linda. Nobody did. But in one of her rant sessions where she's going on and on about how good he is, the bass player for the animals hears Linda talking about this guy, Jimi Hendrix, and says, well, wait a minute. What's his name again? Where does he play? Linda tells him. He goes, listens to Jimi Hendrix, 
loves the guy. The bass player had brought with him a man named Eric Burden. Eric immediately offered his services to be Jimmy's manager. And from there, he gave Jimmy a passport and flew him from New York City to London to kickstart his career. Eric convinced Jimmy also to change his name from J-I-M-M-Y to J-I-M-I. Eric helped him build a band and helped him come up with the name The Jimi Hendrix Experience. Jimmy started playing live in London and immediately the entire London music scene knew Jimi Hendrix. Everybody was completely blown away by how good he was. It was in the same year of 1966. Jimmy calls his father Al in Seattle and says, Dad, I think I've made it. And his dad was like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, I mean, all the musicians in London are coming to hear me play and I'm getting really positive feedback and they love it. And his father Al was just like, okay. His father didn't understand how big he was at all. He, had, he really didn't comprehend it. While Jimmy was in London, Al did not see him for about two or three years. Even though Al didn't physically see his son, Jimmy would call him very frequently and they stayed in touch. Al still didn't fully understand how big Jimmy was until 1968 when Jimmy came back to visit Seattle and Al saw the response of everyone who lived there waiting for Jimmy to get off the plane. The mayor wanted to give Jimmy a key to the city and all of these things. And it wasn't really until that moment that Al realized how successful his son Jimi Hendrix had actually become. During that trip in 1968, Jimmy asked his dad Al, Dad, what do you need? What do you need? And at this point, Al had been with another woman named June. And as far as I understand, June was great and they had a great relationship. At this time in 1968, June's car was about to break down. Just well, That might be an exaggeration, but the car needed a lot of work. So his son Jimmy is asking, Dad, what do you need? And Al said, well, honestly, June's car could use a lot of work. A few days later, Al got an envelope in the mail. He opened it up and it was tens of thousands of dollars and a letter from Jimmy that said, not only should you fix June's car, but why don't you go get yourself a truck while you're at it? Since that trip in 1968, Jimmy made it back to see his dad a couple of times a year. The last time was in 1970. Jimmy was back for a show, and as he got on the plane to say goodbye to his dad, his dad kind of made a joke at him and said, you know, keep your nose clean, son. Jimmy kind of looked back at his dad. Al said it was weird. He got a weird feeling. The way Jimmy just turned around and looked at him was different from every other time that Jimmy had left. He said that Jimmy looked back and then turned around and kept walking to the plane stairs and then turned around again, looked at Al again, turned around again, kept walking to the plane. Jimmy did that three times where he stopped and turned and looked at Al and then turned back away to get on the plane. And Al remembers just having this feeling that that was the last time he was going to see his son. That was in July of 1970. On September 18th, 1970, just a couple months after that, Al got a call from Jimmy's lawyer. Jimmy's lawyer said to Al that his son was dead and he needed to get on a plane and get to New York City as quickly as possible. And not just that, but he needed to bring his own lawyer too. Al didn't really have a personal lawyer, so he ended up bringing the friend of a friend who happened to practice some kind of law. Meanwhile, while Al is packing up his bag and calling his friends trying to figure out who knows a lawyer, word is getting out that Jimi Hendrix has been found dead. In all of the articles and first reportings that were released, no details were given at all. The official statement from the hospital spokesman literally said, and I quote, we do not know where or how or why he died. And then the remainder of any article or news report would basically just be about Jimmy's life and everything that he had accomplished. Now, while the details of that 
night and morning were extremely unclear, there was one thing that was extremely clear. Jimi Hendrix had spent the last day of his life and his final moments with a woman named Monica Daneman. Monica Daneman was a beautiful 25-year-old figure skater. And it was while Jimi Hendrix was on tour in Germany, he met Monica at one of his concerts. He and Monica totally hit it off. He ended up spending that night with Monica and most of the following day. The next day, he was headed about 45 minutes away from Monica's town of Dusseldorf to another town called Cologne. Monica ended up going with him to this second show. And then after that second night together, Monica went back to her hometown is it Dusseldorf? Dusseldorf, Germany. Now, it seems like Monica was absolutely infatuated with Jimi Hendrix. This was January 12th through 14th that she spent with Jimi, but it didn't seem like Jimi was that into Monica, or he was, but he was also just into everybody else too. So even though Monica and Jimi had this very magical weekend together, it was just a couple weeks later when Jimi was seen by the media kissing and hugging another woman who was a model outside of some hotel. I can't imagine that Monica was happy about this, <laughs> seeing Jimmy kissing and making out with another woman when she had spent all of this time with him just two weeks before. I don't know. What do I know? And apparently, Monica did not hear from Jimmy again until about March or April of the following year. Jimmy wrote to Monica, told Monica he wanted her to fly out and see him in New York City. This wasn't feasible for Monica, but she checked to see when Jimmy was coming back to Germany, if he even was. She found out that he wasn't coming back to Germany, but she did see Jimmy was going to be playing in London in April. Jimmy did not invite Monica to come see him in London. Monica saw that Jimmy was playing in London and decided to take a trip to London to, quote, try to bump into Jimmy and maybe start things up again. This seems very Lori Del Santo-ish. Just so many things about Monica Daneman remind me of Lori Del Santo. If you have not seen my Roots documentary on the death of Eric Clapton's son, Connor, I go into the whole history of Eric Clapton and Lori Del Santo and everything that Lori says it just seems like a lie because her story changes all the time. At one point she says Eric Clapton was coming to see her in London. She quote didn't know how to spell Eric Clapton's name. When he came she put his name with the concierge at her building as being Clapton with a K instead of C-L-A-P-T-O-N. Eric was like laughing like you don't know how to spell my name you don't know who I am and she was like oh no. Then in another interview she said that three days before he was in London she saw that he was in London in a newspaper article. And I'm like, well, if you were reading a newspaper article and saw Eric Clapton's name spelled C-L-A-P-T-O-N, and then you saw Eric Clapton live, and then he comes over to your house and you put the wrong name with the doorman, it just seems sneaky to me. Kind of how Monica Daneman seems in this moment, especially because she just saw Jimmy was coming to London and is like, okay, I'll go to London and run and maybe we'll bump into each other, quote unquote, bump into each other. Oh my gosh, like, Jimmy, what are you doing here? I was just here having dinner. It's fate. It's meant to be. So that's what Monica did. And obviously her plan worked because she went to London to see Jimmy's show. Jimmy sees Monica in the audience and is like, oh my gosh, Monica, what are you doing here? But they ended up having, she said, nine days together. But then later it comes out, they actually only spent that night together. I guess Monica wishes that they had spent nine days together. But nonetheless, that was in April of 1969. At some point in 1970, and I have trouble finding the exact receipts for this, but at some point, I believe it was in September of 1970, the Danish press was reporting Jimi Hendrix was engaged to a woman named Kirsten Neffer. Kirsten Neffer was spending time in London with Jimi Hendrix. In September of 1970, Kirsten went on 
a work trip. During this work trip, Jimmy reached back out to Monica Daneman. I think he and Monica had been on and off that entire year. And like I said, it seems like Monica was way more into Jimmy than Jimmy possibly was into Monica. Maybe Monica was just a placeholder for Jimmy, somebody to party with, someone to just call whenever he was in town and his fiance was on a work trip. I don't know. I don't know. Monica and Jimmy got together to spend that entire week together that Kirsten was gone. The day before Jimmy was found dead, he and Monica had gone out the night before and didn't wake up until about noon. It wasn't until two o'clock in the afternoon, Jimmy went out to the garden of this hotel that Monica was staying at and started having tea in the garden while Monica took pictures of him with his favorite Fender Stratocaster. These photos would become pretty famous because they are the last photos of Jimi Hendrix. Now, on the night of September 17th, Monica drove Jimi Hendrix to a party. After the party, she and Jimmy came back to the hotel where Jimmy supposedly told Monica he had a big day the next day and really needed to get some sleep. Because of this, he wanted to take some of Monica's sleeping pills. Monica said that she urged Jimmy to try to sleep naturally without a sleeping pill, but that she ended up taking a sleeping pill herself so that she could get some sleep. She says that she woke up around 10 a.m. and Jimmy was still sleeping right next to her, completely normal. She got up around 10.45, took a shower, and left to get some cigarettes. She says when she got back around 11.15, she saw Jimmy still in bed unresponsive. It wasn't until she looked a little bit closer, she saw that there was some vomit dribbling out of his mouth and she thought something could be wrong. She thought she would try to call the doctor, his personal doctor, but she says she didn't know the doctor's address. So she was looking for his phone number. Ultimately, eventually, she calls 911. Somehow, before she called 911, Eric Burden showed up. If you remember, Eric Burden discovered Jimmy. Now, even though Eric Burden shows up and plays a big role in all of this, Eric Burden was not Jimmy's manager at the time of his death. At the time of his death, Jimmy's manager was a guy named Mike Jeffrey. And we're going to talk about him in a few minutes, too, because there are a lot of characters in Jimmy's death, and it's all very suspicious. But either way, before Monica calls for an ambulance, before the first responders get there, Eric Burden showed up. It's speculated Eric Burden was cleaning the flat, disposing of any drugs or any pills or anything that would look bad. Monica says that she called the ambulance around 11.19 a.m. They showed up around 11.27 a.m. Both of the first responders who showed up had the same story. They both said the door to the flat was wide open. All of the curtains were closed and they were blackout curtains. So it was pitch black in the flat. They said the gas fireplace was on and was on hot. There's a fire in the fireplace and that Jimmy was alone in the bed. They both said that Monica was nowhere to be found. Eric was nowhere to be found. It was just Jimmy alone in the flat like this. They felt for a pulse. There was no pulse. They took a flashlight, put it straight into Jimmy's eyes, and there was no response from his pupils, no response from him at all. Even so, they rushed him into the ambulance and rushed him to the hospital. He arrived at the hospital at 11.45 a.m. Immediately, they hooked him up to monitors and machines. He was completely flatlined. The hospital spokesperson also said by the time he was admitted, he was cold and blue. All parameters proved that he had been dead for quite some time. They continued to work on him for about half an hour, but he continued to be unresponsive. In the official statement, when he was declared dead at 12.45 p.m., the hospital spokesman said, quote, on admission, he was obviously dead. He had no pulse, no heartbeat, and the attempt 
attempt to resuscitate him was merely a formality. Al said that once he got to New York, everything just seemed really weird. He said people were coming up to him saying that they had been best friends with Jimmy, that they knew Jimmy super well, and he had never heard of any of these people. He said he went to Jimmy's flat and requested that all of Jimmy's things be sent back to Seattle, and his dad never received Jimmy's items. He said he received a handful of Jimmy's items, but he definitely did not receive everything. Apparently, Jimmy's items were also auctioned off, and Al has no idea where those proceeds went or who they went to. Um, but what gets even more weird is Monica's explanation of everything that happened that morning. Monica's story immediately started changing. With every breath she took, she would contradict herself constantly, just like Lori Dal Santo. Just throwing that in there. And then details of the party that Jimmy was at the night before started coming to light. Because the people who were at that party say that Monica and Jimmy were really not doing well before they had gone back to Monica's flat. At 1.45 a.m., Monica had driven Jimmy to this party that was being hosted by one of his friends named Pete Cameron. About 30 minutes after Monica dropped Jimmy off, she came back to Pete's house. Pete lived on a flat. If you think about like a short mid-rise building, he might have been the third or fourth floor up. Monica drops off Jimmy, leaves, comes back half an hour later, and is buzzing Pete's flat. Constantly buzzing it, not just once, not just one little tap, tap, buzz, buzz. She is repeatedly buzzing the flat. It just seems weird. She comes back half an hour later demanding to speak to Jimmy. What could be that urgent? Another woman at the party who was just a guest there, her name was Stella. She was the one who responded to Monica's buzzing because it's an intercom. If you're not familiar with a mid-rise in that time, you would buzz it and an intercom could come up and you could speak to the person outside waiting to come up. So Stella got on the intercom and told Monica, to leave, which I'm sure Monica did not appreciate. Apparently, after several times Monica did leave, Jimmy was visibly upset and clearly did not want to speak to Monica. Well, 15 minutes after the buzzing incident, Monica comes back and she is insisting to speak to Jimmy. Stella gets back on the intercom and this time apparently was pretty rude to Monica and told Monica basically to F off. Monica didn't love this, but also wasn't going to take this from Stella. Monica left, came back, left, came back several times, screaming up at the windows that she wanted to speak to Jimmy. Eventually, Jimmy caved and came downstairs to speak to Monica. Nobody knows what they were saying or what their argument was, but Jimmy and Monica abruptly left the party about three o'clock in the morning. Monica said she and Jimmy went back to her flat around three o'clock in the morning, where she proceeded to make them some tuna fish sandwiches. And that's when Jimmy said that he was getting sleepy and had a big day the next day. And Monica urged him to try to sleep naturally, even though she said Jimmy kept asking her for some sleeping pills. And at that point, Monica took her own sleeping pill and went to bed. And then everything started at 10 a.m. like she said when she woke up and it was normal. And then she went to get cigarettes and came back and all of that. But people at the party and people who heard about this party started to get extremely suspicious of Monica, not only because apparently it seems like they were fighting the night before, but because Monica's story kept changing. Police Sergeant John Shaw wrote a police report of everything that Monica had told him. 
She told him, quote, we went to sleep about seven o'clock a.m. When I woke up at 11, his face was covered in vomit and he was breathing noisily. I sent for an ambulance. He was taken to the hospital. I also noticed that 10 of my sleeping pills were missing. And this is what she told Police Sergeant John Shaw at four o'clock on September 18th, which is different from the story she told that morning, which was that she woke up at 10 a.m. and he was fine and he was still breathing and she left to get cigarettes and then she came back and and it was when she came back, she noticed a little bit of vomit dribbling and thought, maybe I should find his doctor's address. Very different at four o'clock. But this is even different from a statement that she gave on September 24th, which would have been several days later. I made a sandwich and we talked until about seven o'clock a.m. He then said that he wanted to go to sleep. He took some tablets and we went to bed. I woke up about 11 o'clock a.m. and saw that his face was covered in vomit. I tried to wake him but could not. I called an ambulance and he was taken to the hospital. Prior to going with him to the hospital, I checked my supply of sleeping tablets and found that nine of them were missing. I don't think we're disputing nine or 10, whatever, but the point is it's still changing, right? She says in the second statement that she saw him take the tablets before they went to bed, whereas at four o'clock on September 18th, she said she didn't notice her sleeping pills were missing until after he was taken to the hospital. Everything seems to be changing because then in the next statement, she saw him take the tablets. And it's still different from her initial statement. Then a year later in 1971, she wrote a manuscript where she changes her story again. And in that manuscript, she said she woke up at 9 a.m. And according to Eric, he said he received a phone call regarding a problem with Hendrix. And that phone call was around 8 or 9 a.m. In Monica's statement to the police, she never mentions calling Eric Burden. Monica also said she was in the ambulance as Jimmy was being taken to the hospital. But the first responders said she was not there. She was not in the flat and she was not in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. Why would you lie about that? This is the thing about compulsive liars. They They lie so much, they don't even think through how to properly lie. And it wasn't just the two first responders who said Monica was not in the ambulance with them. Eric Burden even said, no, Monica was with me. Now, at some point when Eric arrived at the flat and before the media got there and before word got out that Jimmy was dead, Eric found a poem Jimmy had written the day before when he was having that afternoon tea in the garden area and Monica was taking photos of him. And the last stanza of that poem read, quote, The story of life is quicker than the wink of an eye. The story of love is hello and goodbye until we meet again or something like that. Now, Eric, when he first saw this poem, thought that it was a suicide note. So when the media got there, he was telling the media he thought Jimmy had killed himself and this was a suicide note. But what's weird, how did he find that poem? I'm just trying to picture the scene. Okay, so let's picture the scene. Probably what happened. Monica wakes up and sees Jimmy overdose on the floor. She starts calling his friends. One of them is Eric Burden. Eric Burden comes over and she's probably panicking. Jimmy, Jimmy, there's something wrong with Jimmy. And Eric goes over to Jimmy. Don't you think in that sort of a situation, a poem or a piece of paper is the last thing that you would be thinking about unless someone handed it to you and put it in your face and said, look. And it almost makes me think that Monica called Eric Burden. Eric Burden came over and Monica said, it's a suicide look, here's a suicide note, even though it was just a poem that Jimmy had written. Eric goes out to the media saying it was a suicide. Well, later, 
Eric changed and said, no, I don't think that was a suicide note. I misunderstood the note. Is he covering for Monica? Did Monica give him that paper saying it's a suicide note? Or did Eric assume that Monica also misunderstood the note? It's just weird to me. This poem, you know, makes its way as one of the main parts of this story when it was just a poem that he wrote the day before. Unless Monica was trying to make it look like a suicide and trying to support that theory with this poem. Eric, do you think that this is a suicide note? So that was a terrible German accent. Eric, I can't do a German accent. I can do an English accent. I'll do an English. Eric, do you think this is a suicide note? And then Monica said that Jimmy wrote Monica that poem and it was a love note to her. Even though it says like, till we meet again, it's not exactly saying, marry me, I love you, you know? And it kind of makes me also think Monica had a motive and that motive was that Jimmy was indeed engaged to Kirsten Neffer. Kirsten was on a work trip. Monica was maybe getting frustrated that she's been strung along for an entire year by Jimi Hendrix. And she convinces him to take these sleeping pills and then tries to make it look like a suicide. Maybe that's possible. And that's what a lot of people thought until Jimmy's roadie steps forward and says that he has a confession from Jimmy's manager confessing to murdering Jimi Hendrix. One of Jimmy's roadies named James Wright, who went by the nickname Tappy, wrote a book called Rock Roadie, Backstage and Confidential with Hendrix. In this book, he says Jimi Hendrix's manager, Mike Jeffrey, confessed to murdering Jimi Hendrix to him in 1971, just one year after Jimi died. He says Mike Jeffries forced Jimi to take all those sleeping pills. According to Tappy, Mike confessed to him, quote, I had to do it, Tappy. You understand, don't you? I had to do it. You know damn well what I'm talking about. We went to Jimmy's hotel room, got a handful of pills and stuffed them into his mouth, then poured a few bottles of red wine deep into his windpipe. What's even crazier than the fact that Mike is saying all of this to Tappy, allegedly, is that Mike died in a plane crash not even a year and a half after this supposed confession happened. Now, what's really interesting is Mike Jeffries admitting that red wine was forced down his windpipe. If you look at the actual autopsy for Jimi Hendrix, his cause of death is inhalation of vomit, barbiturate, I hope I'm saying that right, intoxication, basically just overdosing on and that type of drug is consistent with the type of sleeping pill that Monica had. And then it says insufficient evidence of circumstances. Open verdict. What that means is that they could not determine if this was or was not a suicide. And they're leaving it open because it could have been a murder. In the postmortem evaluation, they provided a little bit more detail. He said that there were no marks on Jimmy that would indicate that he was doing any types of drugs. He noted that the right side of Jimmy's heart was slightly dilated, but found no evidence of any type of heart disease. He also discovered a partially collapsed left lung and fluid in his chest. Both lungs were congested and vomit was found in the smaller bronchi. He found a little bit of rice in his stomach from one of his last meals. He found that his kidneys were healthy, but his liver was congested. His blood alcohol content was definitely enough to fail a breathalyzer. He also had a little bit of cannabis in his system. But one thing that the coroner did not attempt to do, he did not attempt to determine the time of Hendrix's death. Although, 
you can trust the first responders, I think. When they say when they found him, there was no response. Now, Monica continues to insist that Jimmy was alive in the flat and that he died at the hospital. Now, going back to Mike Jeffrey for a second, Jimmy Hendrick's manager, When you look into who Mike Jeffrey was on top of this supposed confession, it really makes you think Mike was the man behind it all. Before Mike Jeffrey was Jimi Hendrix's manager, he was actually a covert op for the British intelligence. Eric Burden actually wrote a memoir where he talks about all of the things that Mike Jeffrey would brag about to him and the band, including but not limited to all of his espionage escapades, all of his Cold War assassinations he helped stage, torturing agents, which, by the way, forcing ingestion and like drowning people, that was all types of torture that they would use in the Cold War, especially that the British would use. So it's very interesting. Mike would brag about all of this to Eric Burden, and it's literally how Jimmy ended up dying. And he would also talk about blowing up various bases, Russian bases and Egyptian military bases. You might be thinking going from being a total spy and working in British intelligence to becoming a musician's manager seems like quite the career pivot. But apparently Mike Jeffrey had befriended someone named Don Arden. That man, Don Arden, was Sharon Osbourne's father. Mike Jeffrey really liked what Don Arden was doing. Don Arden was slaying as a manager and was very plugged into the music scene. And Mike Jeffrey absolutely loved that. And plus, being a manager is just a little bit, you know, more low key than planning assassinations and blowing up military bases. So a little step back, you know, we can kind of breathe. Everybody who knew Mike and who had worked with Jimi Hendrix and worked with Mike Jeffrey remember Mike as just a very tactile guy. He loved guns. He loved throwing knives. He really enjoyed electronic bugging devices and was always kind of had hidden cameras and different microphones. And he also kept all of his business records in Russian, not in English. So just something to note about the guy. Now, while Mike might have been a little bit eccentric and a little bit out there. He wasn't stupid. He was actually very smart. Jimmy, while working under Mike, was making over $100,000 per gig. While Jimmy did see some of that money, Jimmy was just way too drugged and exhausted to really manage that money well. It is also said that Mike was stealing money from Jimi Hendrix for years. He knew Jimmy wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Mike had several offshore bank accounts and also managed the books and records for the Jimi Hendrix experience. And Mike, after all, was a multi-millionaire and it would have been very easy for him to hide just a couple hundred thousand dollars in his offshore accounts. In late 1969, right after Jimmy had his first rendezvous with Monica, he told Mike Jeffrey he wanted to disband the Jimi Hendrix experience. He no longer wanted to be a part of it. He was too exhausted and it was too much. He also had a feeling that Mike was stealing from him and just really didn't like Mike to begin with. Soon after Jimmy told Mike Jeffrey he wanted to disband the Jimi Hendrix experience, he was busted in Toronto for possessing Now, Jimmy did not do hair. Jimmy was convinced Mike Jeffrey orchestrated this entire bust. Jimmy and the band believed that Mike did this so that Jimi Hendrix would be forced to continue performing under the Jimi Hendrix experience in order to foot all of his legal bills following this incident. Now, as if that incident wasn't alarming enough, after that whole incident, Jimmy decided he wanted to form a new band called the Band of Gypsies. In January of 1970, Jimi Hendrix did a premiere for the Band of Gypsies at the Madison Square Garden. 
His drummer at the time says that he saw Mike Jeffrey slip Jimmy two tablets of bad just a couple of songs into the gig, Jimmy collapsed on stage, which was very out of character for Jimmy. People say that Jimmy could party all night and do all sorts of things and be completely fine. So for Jimmy to collapse on stage, it really had to have been because something bad was given to him. Just, you know, a bad, knowingly bad. The drummer, Buddy, said after Jimmy's death, if Jimmy had died, then it was 100% because of Mike. After the Madison Square Garden incident in January of 1970, that's when Jimmy decided to go back to London. And of course, that's when he apparently got engaged to Kirsten and also called up Monica again when Kirsten left to go out of town. But he was also trying to lay low while in London because Jimmy knew that Mike Jeffrey had followed him to London. Jimmy was desperately trying to get out from under Mike Jeffrey's thumb. He had actually been talking to another management company. He actually told the new management company he did not want to confront Mike Jeffrey himself. He would prefer that the lawyers take care of it without him having to directly speak to him at all. It was on September 17th, the morning of September 17th, when Jimi Hendrix's new management company called Jimmy's lawyer and told Jimmy's lawyer they were going to need to fire Mike Jeffrey because they had just signed as Jimi Hendrix's new manager or that they were going to sign as his new manager. He hadn't signed yet, but they called the lawyers just to give them that heads up. If one of Jimmy's lawyers called Mike on the afternoon of September 17th and told Mike there was a new management company that Jimmy was signing with, that gave Mike an enormous motive. Not only would Mike Jeffrey be losing his biggest cash cow, but if another management company was going to be taking over the books and records of the Jimi Hendrix experience, they were also also going to discover all of the embezzlement and money laundering and fraud Mike Jeffrey had been participating in for years. After Jimmy's death, Mike Jeffrey's contract with Jimmy was automatically renewed just by default. He continued to get all of the profits from Jimi Hendrix record sales after his death. Not only that, but he also got the $2 million on Jimmy's life insurance policy. It wasn't until 1972 timeframe, things started coming to light about Mike Jeffrey and his embezzlement and his fraud. It was in 1973, Mike Jeffrey died in a plane crash. But what's interesting is that his body was never found. People believe Mike checked his luggage at the airport, but never actually got on that plane. They believe he staged the plane crash to make it look like he had died, but that he never actually boarded at all. Because the reason Mike was getting on that plane in the first place was to go to a London courtroom the following day to defend himself in an embezzlement, money laundering, and fraud hearing. Mike Jeffrey would have been 40 years old on that day in 1973, more than able-bodied and had more than enough money to disappear. So if anybody watching this knows Mike Jeffrey, tell us in the comments below. Was he actually alive? Did he actually stage his own death? Did Mike Jeffrey have this enormous motive against Jimi Hendrix and then conspire with Monica Daneman to orchestrate this whole thing? Had he orchestrated that bust in Toronto? Had he also tried to do this before the show at Madison Square Garden? Researching this story and hearing everybody's interviews, I think it's most likely Mike was very scared about a new management company coming in and taking over the Jimi Hendrix experience. He did not want to be charged with embezzlement and fraud and money laundering. He just wanted to do it. He didn't want to be caught. The fear of being caught by this new management company on top of also losing this cash cow of Jimi Hendrix was just 
too horrible of a thought. He had already hated Jimmy and had already done all of these things against him. I believe totally. I totally think that he orchestrated that thing in London. I totally think he purposely gave him bad tablets before that show. He had conspired with Monica. I think Monica was also mad at him that night. Whether Monica realized that he was engaged to another woman or maybe she felt like he was stringing her along for several months up to a year and just didn't want this anymore. But it's weird. And it's weird how Monica's story doesn't line up in any interview that she gives. It's weird how Mike just went missing and no one ever found his body and he never made it to his court hearing. All of it is really weird. And even though none of it lines up and none of it makes sense, it's the way that none of it is lining up and making sense that makes it all line up and make sense. I definitely think that Jimi Hendrix was murdered after researching this and learning all of this. And it does seem like it was Mike Jeffrey. But like I said, he died in 1973, died. And so we can't get answers from Mike Jeffrey. But what we can do is read the memoirs that have been written and published by Eric Burden and by The Roadie. And let me know what you think in the comments below. Do you think that Jimi Hendrix was murdered? And of course, I will see you on the next Roots Rockumentary. Hungry for the road all my life Thirsty for adventure all my youth Chasing all my freedoms down Liberty Avenue